It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Well, today uh, we are going to devote our entire hour to music and conversation with the singer-songwriter, McLeet. Her full name is uh, McLeet Hadero, but, you know, singers don't need surnames. And if you uh, haven't yet heard of McLeet, it's probably because it has really only been a couple years since she burst on the scene with her uh, breakout album on a day like this. That was in 2010. But uh, since then, she has been on a creative tear. And you'll see what I mean as we play selections from her now substantial and rapidly growing body of work, including her brand new album, We Are Alive. And uh, we are going to start off here with a track from that album, a song she wrote called Slow. The way that people stitch themselves together have been slow, slow, slow. The way that people stitch themselves together have been slow, slow, slow. So give me all the clocks in your house. We can throw them, throw them. Give me all the clocks in your house. We can throw them, throw them. Take the second hand. Slow is a song that evolved actually quite slowly. <laughs> you know, it started out being about the ways in relationships that you discover unexpected things about people over time and how truly long it takes to get to know somebody. And I realized after maybe a year of singing it that it was actually, for me, really much more about how nothing ever takes the time you think it will. So give me all the clocks in your house We can throw them, throw them We can watch them All the things that truly matter to us are so rarely quick. They're more like slow-cooked meals or <laughs> paintings that kind of you excavate the meaning over time. So, so that's what slow is. It's a kind of evolution of the funny ways that people relate to each other and <laughs> stitching yourselves together over personal eons. <laughs> I want to know how you stitched yourself together as a singer. <laughs> it I took mean, a long time. Was it an act of stitching, do you think, in a way? I think it was more about recognition, you know. Um, when I grew up, I always wanted to be a singer. I always thought that that's what I should do. But I, I didn't really know how one becomes a singer, you know. What does it really mean to be a singer? And I saw kind of two paths towards music. I saw an academic path where I had friends who would you know, study very deeply, but it was very strict and intensive and almost punitive in a way. And I was like, nah, that's not for me. And then I saw another way, which was much more the sort of cult of fame. And, and that also wasn't exactly for me either. I was like, no, that, those, those people seem kind of sad. <laughs> so, so what is it? How can you be a musician in the world? And I didn't really understand until I moved to San Francisco in 2004. And very randomly came across the Red Poppy Art House and met a group of artists of all disciplines from all over the world who were engaged in arts in a way that was relevant to the world around them, asking questions about the world around them, coming from a place that I really truly identified with. I was like, oh, this is how I can do it. And so once that happened, it all sort of unfolded super quickly. 
How old were you roughly at that time? 24. 24. Yeah. Had you been singing to yourself privately? How had you been developing your obvious vocal talents? I was a shower singer and a car <laughs> singer. And, you know, I knew all the words, the songs on the radio growing up and all that stuff. But, you know, I would sing at occasional school functions or like with different community service organizations and high school, things like that. I actually started a underground arts event in college just, you know, just with some friends and, and would occasionally sing an acapella song there. But, you know, it was more casual. Were you shy about the singing? I was shy about my intentions. You know, I because I always had a feeling like this could never be for the applause. Like this is such a precious thing. Singing is so precious. It's like I can never do it because people applaud. It has to be for another reason. Mm. And so that was a very scary thing <laughs> to kind of get over in my late teens and early 20s. What is the earliest song that uh, you performed that is on the recordings that we have? Um... I think it must be Soleil Soleil. That was, I think, the third song I ever wrote, ever. <laughs> wow. Well, then we have to play it. All right, there you go. Soleil, Soleil, so, so, Soleil, so, so, Soleil, so, lay. Soleil, Soleil, so, so, Soleil, so, so, Soleil, so, lay. Soleil, Soleil, so, so, Soleil, so, so, Soleil, so. Soleil Soleil by <laughs> Maclit, the earliest of your original compositions that are on your uh, 2010 breakthrough recording. That's a day right. like this. Mm-hmm. On a day like this. On a day like this. Mm-hmm. Um, Soleil Soleil, Sun Sun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wrote that song after the winter of 2006. And if anybody in San Francisco remembers, that was the year it rained literally for 40 days straight. And it was so drenching all the time, and I was just longing for the sun. Kids really like that song. Like, all these little kids, these moms send me <laughs> send me short videos of their kids dancing to the, that song. They Kids love it for some reason. I can see that. I can see that. <laughs> the repetition, the rhythm, absolutely. Well, you know, if I had heard that, I'd say, okay, here's someone who's adventurous, you know, who's experimenting, you know, who's got some jazz and some other things all coming together. What was your musical background? What did you grow up listening to? What did you love? I loved a lot of different kind of music. I grew up listening to um, Ethiopian music in the car on old tapes in my parents' cassette player. You know, we would be driving from here to there in Iowa and Brooklyn. And I also grew up listening to 80s radio, you know, 
Michael Jackson was my first musical crush, and I wrote him a fan letter when I was five. Really? <laughs> yeah, and he wrote me back. I mean, the fan club wrote me back a year later. <laughs> and and because I grew up in New York, I was listening to a lot of early hip hop, and there was always jazz in the, in the streets in New York. There were always saxophonists and drummers, and right next to b-boys and break dancers and, and so you had everything really yeah yeah it really had a mix and that's why i'm still comfortable with the mix i think <laughs> your parents emigrated from ethiopia actually you did too you were mm-hmm. how old when you came over i was just under two years old were they fleeing uh the mengistu regime the yeah. dictatorship yeah you know it was times of political turmoil and We ended up in Germany for a pretty brief amount of time and then heading to Washington, D.C. and Iowa and then finally landing in Brooklyn where I spent my elementary school years. Were you part of uh, Ethiopian-American community there? Were you kind of an oddball in a way, the Ethiopian kid among Americans? Yeah, I was definitely the Ethiopian kid amongst Americans. You know, back then there weren't very many Ethiopians in the United States. It's not like it is now where... You know, my cousins who are growing up here now, they have so much family here. We we have so much family and neighbors. And, you know, you go to the grocery store in the right neighborhood mm-hmm. and you can hear Amharic. And it was not like that when I was growing up at all. So it was definitely a time where being Ethiopian was a very unusual thing. And I think it's become quite normalized in this country now, which is great. The music that uh, you heard on cassette tapes, which was the only way, as I recall, to get Ethiopian jazz, Ethiopian pop at that time. Yep. Tenth generation cassette tapes. Everybody would dub copies for each other. Totally. And it was like (laughs) they would slow down because it was so you'd played it so many times or somebody spilled a glass of Coke on it and it would make the weird noise in the middle. For from like minute two to two twenty, and it was it was definitely well worn, <laughs> you might say. You've recorded only a couple songs in Amharic, yes, as far as I know. And I wanted to play one of them. Um, this one I think is kind of a classic. I'm familiar with the version sung by uh, the famous Ethiopian singer Mahmoud Ahmed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Abai Mado. Mm-hmm. And again, this is from On a Day Like This. It's an old song, yeah? It is, yeah. I'm guessing that might have been a favorite of your parents. You know, 
I didn't sing it for my parents, although they were happy that I sang it. Uh-huh. I sang it because it grabbed me by the collar and didn't let me go. I was obsessed with that song. And I could listen to it over and over and over and over and dance to it in my room. And it ended up being this open door for me. Abaymado, which is a story of a farmer and his life on the Blue Nile River in Ethiopia. The Abai is the Blue Nile. Um, We played that song when I brought my band to Ethiopia in 2011, and people were just going wild. And uh, Ethiopia is currently building a dam called the Grand Renaissance Dam on the Abai. And it was just at the time when the announcement of that dam had been made. And it's, it's kind of the symbol of a kind of nation building or this capacity to lift Ethiopia into the future. So it was really this meaningful song uh, at the time that this announcement had been made. And, and singing that song became a kind of invitation for people to talk with me about the river. And, you know, as a person from diaspora, the one thing that you're separated from, even if you're immersed in the music, immersed in the culture, immersed in the food and all of these other things, you know, what you're away from is the ecology. It's the physical environment. So it became this like open door into having this conversation about the Ethiopian environment and and all of these things. And then it ended up being the kind of impetus for starting the Nile Project um, along with Mina Girgis, who's a dear friend of mine and an Egyptian ethnomusicologist. And it all came from being obsessed with that song and not knowing why. I want to talk about your work on the Nile Project, um, and we'll definitely do that. But a little bit more about singing that song. How is your Amharic? Did you grow up speaking Amharic? You know, I spoke Amharic until my sister and I went to school. I mean, we were living in Iowa at the time. We lived four years in Iowa when we first came to the States. And, you know, later on in New York, we had cousins around and things like that. But in Iowa, there was nobody. You know, it was like there was one other Ethiopian family who literally knocked on our door (laughs) and found us through word of mouth. And they were like, you're here. (laughs) And so and we're still and we're still good friends with them. But when I was growing up, there was really no other Ethiopians around. And so we spoke in the house. And then when we went to school, we lost Amharic. And then it was later that I started learning wow. Amharic again. And I'm still not fluent, but, you know, singing in it is is more than possible. <laughs> you sing in a style there uh, on that song, Abai Mado, um, that I wouldn't call traditional. No. I mean, no one would mistake this for like any of the original recordings from the 70s or whenever it first came out. No. So you've updated it. How did the Ethiopian audience uh, feel about that? Oh, they loved it. And I actually didn't know how they would feel about it. I I didn't know how Ethiopians would interact with that song. You know, Ethiopia doesn't have a lot of media representatives in other parts of the world. You know, it doesn't get a lot of coverage in the news. Or if it does, it's about um, many of the laundry lists. Yeah, (laughs) laundry list of typical stories that Mm. might be realities but are also only part of the story. So... What I found is that while singing in English and then also singing in Amharic, people were really excited and feeling like, hey, this is a new way of being represented. Well, you know, you mentioned uh, the diaspora, and it reminded me of a song that uh, you did on your uh, 2012 album, Earthbound, Phone Home. Yeah. <laughs> First, tell me about this album and the concept. 
Ethiopian sci-fi hip-hop opera? Yeah. The concept was that myself, Gabriel Teodros, who's an MC from Seattle and also happens to be my cousin, and Uh um, Elias Fulmore, who was like the first producer to start bringing Ethiopian traditional music into hip-hop. We're all very close, and we all have been exploring these questions of diaspora and cultural connection in our own music for a long time. And one day we were hanging out at Elias's place, and um, we heard this beat, and we were like, okay, we're going to record a song right now. And at one point, Gabriel and I were sort of sitting far apart on the couch and we both reached over to each other with that one finger extended and we were like E.T. phone home <laughs> and we were just being goofballs you know we were like that's it <laughs> you know and the and the concept just sort of sprung from there but we realized that sci-fi was this perfect perfect metaphor to be able to talk about diaspora and cultural connection and the metaphor kept giving. It kept giving to us. So we all started uh, thinking about characters, and we ended up inhabiting these characters throughout the whole album, which became Earthbound. Great. Well, let's hear a bit from the opening of Phone Home from your 2012 album, Earthbound, with... Gabriel Teodros and Burnt Face. Together, we are Copper Wire. Overnight, divine wisdom is the prism that's refracting the light. They say I'm a rapper, cause my packaging tight. Send a package to Africa, I bring it back on the flight. That's right, I bring it back on the flight. That was an excerpt there from Phone Home by my guest McLeet, along with her fellow musicians and rappers, Burnt Face and Gabriel Teodros, and together we're Copper Wire. It opens with you talking about outer space. Yes. But then the rap gets very personal mm-hmm. about relatives in Ethiopia communicating with them via Skype, the world of the person who's 
emigrated and the world of the people back home. Yeah. You know, there's the alien and then there's the alien. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we call immigrants aliens. I don't, but some people do. Some people do. But there's something to feeling that way, and there and there's something to these transatlantic distances that sometimes might as well be the moon, <laughs> you know? What is that other world, and, and how do you communicate across it? And how much are your worlds relevant to each other, and where do they cross over, and, and how can they cross over in more healthy ways? Also, there's the side of it that's about home, about always being being away from home and yet immersed in home. And and the side of you changes when you arrive on a new shore. And these are all questions that can really easily be talked about through (laughs) space travel and galactic distances. (laughs) And and, uh, Elias, uh, a.k.a. Burnt Face, right, Mm -hmm. who's rapping Mm -hmm. there, Mm -hmm. starts by saying, you think we swat flies all day? He's talking about perceptions of Africa, right? right? He's saying, no, we have computers, we have cell phones, I'm talking to my relatives via Skype. <laughs> well, what you think is a mythical world yeah. is a very real world. Yeah. You know, the what feels to you to be um, so far is actually quite near mm. and dear and actually belongs as part of the world story. Mm. You know, like uh, all four of your albums that I've listened to, that one is very well produced. What is it with you and good production? <laughs> um, seriously, I mean, honestly, there, there, there are singers I like, but then I'll hear a tune and I'll think, oh, I just wish they hadn't put that lick in or they hadn't, you know, given it that instrumental treatment or that arrangement so corny or sappy. And I never experienced that with your music. Are you driving that or are you working with some really tasteful people? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. It's always both. You know, it's always important to recognize that everything that you hear is a team coming together. I'm often writing the songs myself or collaboratively, so that's one level. Um, There are so many musicians that I just admire and enjoy playing with and love bringing into recording. Um, And then the producers that we've worked with, I worked with Eric Moffat on On A Day Like This, as well as the album I did with Quinn and um, Burnt Face, as well as Chris Cornelio, um, the two of them produced the Earthbound album, and um, Eli Cruz, who is just such an incredible musician and human being and sonic manipulator, and just he, he produced he your produced, latest. Yeah, he produced "We Are Alive." We and, Are Alive, your latest, which just came out really in March. Right? Yeah, yeah. Well, why don't we um, jump forward again? We're bouncing around chronologically because we opened with "Slow," which is from. Uh, We Are Alive, your latest CD. And we're going to go back to your latest CD just to hear that sound you're talking about and uh, Eli Cruz's production and also some of the terrific musicians that you play with. Yes. And what we're going to hear is, um, is this another original? Yes. You wrote this? Yes. You sure? Really? (laughs) Why? It it felt to me like a song that I might have heard before by some famous singer, you know? And it just has a classic (laughs) sound to it. But let's hear it. And uh, people can make up their own minds. Just when the sound of you 
Waiting for Earthquakes by McLeet, who's my guest today on the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. McLeet is a singer now based in San Francisco who is also a songwriter, and um, she's been doing a lot of amazing stuff for the last four years at least. From your 2010 album On a Day Like This to your new one, a bit of which we just heard, your new album, uh, We Are Alive. Um, McLeet, I want to know all about that song. First of all, I want to know, <laughs> how did it come together? What did it start with, and how did it evolve into what it is now? Well, um, I first wrote the lyrics, and I sat on them for about a year. Without a melody? Yes. Wow. And of course, you live in earthquake country, and I know it's a metaphor, but uh, what yeah. were you thinking? What were you thinking? I was thinking how we're so often in situations that we know will end, and we stay there anyway, and we... We somehow are willing to handle the fragility, you know, whether it's a relationship or, you know, for example, in San Francisco, living in a house and, you know, <laughs> you know, at some point it's going to end. You got You're going to have to move, but you stay as long as you can until the earthquake shakes you loose, you know, so metaphorically. You Not just metaphorically. Yeah. For no. real. The, I mean. Well, it, it, it was a metaphor when I wrote it, but I knew that it would resonate because it's so true. And we live in San Francisco on a fault line, you know, and how crazy it is, how absolutely crazy it is that we have built our city knowing that. And it's not just here. It's, it's all of California and it's many parts of the world. Just true of life. You know, life is so unpredictable so impermanent. I was waiting for the earthquake, for the earthquake, waiting I was, waiting I was waiting for the earthquake, for the earthquake. And if you think about it too much, it can be overwhelming. But the beautiful part is that we build anyway, that we build as humans. And that part is the triumph. Knowing that it will end, we still build. And isn't that beautiful? And I don't know, some people say it's dark, but I'm okay <laughs> with it. That's just how it is. <laughs> you know, uh, one adjective I would not use for the songs of yours that I've heard is dark. You seem like a pretty optimistic, positive person to me. Despite the challenges. <laughs> I mean, the whole thing, the whole album, We Are Alive, you know, it's all about the fact that as hard as it gets and as deep as the challenges go and as sweet and as high as the triumphs go, you know, we are alive. And that's the through line between them. But we can only say that without the saccharine if we look at the full range of experiences that we have. Um, so you started with a lyric. Well, how did you get that ultimate oh, right. that arrangement, original question. the melody, the music? <laughs> yeah. So um, so I started with the lyric, and then in the fall of 2012, I had a real songwriting bloom that actually lasted about a year until we went into the studio. And I started working on a melody, and it was just this pair of chords on the guitar that I was just, like, playing with. The way I like to work is that I like to try to learn new things on the guitar and then immediately feed them into a composition, you know, so that the way you grow technically can always influence how your songs evolve. So I was messing around with some rhythms on the guitar and then I was like, oh, this works here. 
And then after that, like every section came slowly and came through playing it over and over and over again, um, both myself and with the band. And of course, like Lorca just adds so much with the drums and he really does a lot to shape that song. That song with his rhythmic, impressionistic approach. Now let's name your core musicians, the ones that you've played with for a while now. and that, Yeah. Uh, so Darren Johnston is on trumpet and Sam Bevan is on bass and a little bit of keys and Lorca Hart is on drums and they all had a lot to do with the arrangements on We Are Alive. So there's there's a lot that they all contributed and they're amazing musicians and composers and band leaders in their own right. Let's hear the chorus again uh, from Waiting for Earthquakes. It had some associations for me, which is why I said earlier that it almost sounded like a classic or a standard. You know, honestly, when I was listening to that over and over again, I started to think maybe that's a Joan Armitrading song. <laughs> that chorus in particular, that part of the song has something very Joan Armitrading about it. It wasn't something that I was intending, but I was listening to her song Down to Zero a lot at one point, And um, I think it just got in my, uh, <laughs> got in my vocal cords. That's the way it is with music. And you know, people have compared you to all kinds of singers, from Nina Simone to uh, Nora Jones. Um, who else do you get compared to? I get compared to Joni Mitchell. Oh, that's or... right, of course, yeah. And and do you think you're channeling all those influences when you sing? I think everybody's channeling their entire history when they show up anywhere. <laughs> Some people don't like to admit it, though. <laughs> it's, no, it's just the way it is, you know. Music, it's its like when you spend a lot of time with a friend and suddenly you realize you're laughing like them. Mm. You're like, that's so-and-so's laugh. How did that, how did I start laughing like that? It's That's how music, it's like you listen to it enough and, and it becomes a part of you and you end up expressing it whether you want to or not. It's a funny thing when that ends up kind of colliding with the idea of, you know. Originality. Yeah. Yeah. But if you look at any folk music... It's a collective creation. It's all a collective effort. Yeah. So you can claim it, but you can't claim it too much. But I want to make it clear, though, that uh, there may be strains of other people's work that surface in your voice, but you don't sound like an imitator to me at all, you know? Thank you. And you have certain um, vocal effects. Maybe I can find an example. I'm going to play just a little excerpt from your song, Leaving Soon. And this, again, is from On a Day Like This. And this has some vocal characteristics that I, I find distinctive. <laughs> <laughs> and there we lay with my guitar and play. Oh, 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 lovely. My dear, my dear, so far from here. Oh, you'll be, you'll be, you'll be. Well, maybe you can stay with me. Well, your eyebrows, they are softly like branches toward the water, and your fingertips, they remind me of the moon. I will 
Near the end there, we heard your, your voice fluttering, cracking, breaking in various ways. Do you have a way of referring to what you're doing there? Ethiopian. If you listen to traditional Ethiopian music, mm-hmm. there's not just one way of traditionally singing. So there's lots of ways. But one of the ways that they really approach sound is through this intense vibrato flutter, very emotive approach to singing. And I like to bring it in even when I'm singing in English. And I think that's part of what makes it sound a little bit different. So that's those old cassette tapes from childhood. And the shape of my vocal cords, I guess. You know, there's a, there's a lot you can do to develop your voice, but you're also born with a tone, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah, that's just part of how I sing. I, I think that that's a hard sound for a lot of people to reproduce. I mean, I've listened to a lot of Ethiopian music, but I can't imitate that. <laughs> so you're lucky you got that in your background and you can pull that out when you need to. Um you mentioned that you had worked with Quinn, that is uh, Quinn DeVoe, uh, who's based in Oakland. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You guys did uh, an album um, just a couple of years ago, 2012, I think. Yeah. Uh, McLeet and Quinn. Yes. Beautiful album, and I want to give an example. This is a cover of an Arcade Fire song. Mm-hmm. It's called uh, Neighborhood Number One, in parentheses, Tunnels. People might know the Arcade Fire version, but you guys did something different with it. So that is my guest, McLeet Hadero, uh, along with the singer Quinn DeVoe, who's based in Oakland. McLeet's based in San Francisco. How did you two get together to sing the first time? It was a really fun moment. There was an underground art space called Blue Six on 24th Street, and it was maybe 2009. 
um, late 2009 or early 2010. And um, Quinn and I ended up at a show there. It was run by our friend Joe Lewis. And um, I'd known who Quinn was, but we'd never hung out. And Joe said to the two of us, hey, why don't you guys stay? And we closed the doors and broke out a six pack and traded songs till four in the morning. Wow. And we were like, all right, <laughs> I guess there's something here. And then I invited him to come open for me for my CD release party for On A Day Like This. Um, and we also did a version together that night of Sam Cooke's Bring It On Home To Me. Well, I was going to play that too. <laughs> just, just, just wait just a moment longer. Um, so Quinn, uh, you know, from what I've heard of his music, he he can do blues, soul, R&B, uh, folk. Yeah, folk and gospel too. And gospel too. And your voices fit together so beautifully. Did you work to get them to merge so gorgeously in these harmonies, or was it natural? Did it just happen? Well, Bring It On Home to Me was natural. It just happened. It was right before the show, and I was like, hey, let's do an encore together. And we kind of puttered around for a minute and decided on Bring It On Home to Me, and we just sang it once in the dressing room and then sang it at the end of the show, and that was there. The other stuff we really did work on we worked a lot on it, in fact, and what I was really interested in with him was that he was doing so much what you might call early rock and roll. And for us, we decided that we wanted to take rock songs, indie rock songs, art rock songs, which we both loved, and trace them to their soul roots and look at the kind of through line that existed between Arcade Fire and Sam Cooke. Because there is one, and it's actually very direct. We just don't think about it very much. No, I wouldn't have thought of those two going together that that much. Yeah. But but that music, you know, soul and R and B music, is what birthed rock and became what we hear today. And we wanted to kind of highlight soul music at the core of what our popular music is. When it comes to Sam Cooke, it was gospel before it was That's R&B, right. too. Or so. Well, rock and roll was gospel before it mm. was mm. <laughs> rock and roll. Mm. Well, let's uh, not delay any further. Let's hear your version of Bring It On Home To Me, McLeet and Quinn, from their album of that name, McLeet and Quinn, an acapella version. If you ever change your mind about guys took a song by Sam Cooke that couldn't be improved on. Nobody could outdo Sam Cooke nope. at being Sam Cooke. But you made it your own, and, you know, with that beautiful harmonic treatment. It's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. And that album is great all the way around. I mean, you guys do a ton of covers, right? 
mm-hmm. Arcade yeah. Fire, Lou Reed, mm-hmm. like Talking Heads. Yep. Uh, Stevie Wonder. Yep. Patty Smith, Neil Young, and uh, one by me, one by him, and one we wrote together, sent by you. We talked about how you didn't really come out as a singer until you were in your mid-20s, you'd moved to San Francisco, um, though you'd been thinking about it, nursing this idea, Mm -hmm. and developing your gifts, obviously, in some way as a songwriter all this time. Actually, I wrote my first song when I was 25. Is that right? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, so you hadn't been. Wow. But things were maturing and developing so that by the time you stepped out, you were already far along as an artist. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Before you came out to San Francisco, you were you were in college, right? Mm-hmm. You you went to Yale. I did in political science. Yep. What were you planning to do? You know, I had no idea. Is the truth? I mean, you know, a liberal arts degree of any kind is not a vocational degree. For me, what I thought about college and kind of the approach they steep you in at Yale, if you were a part of the liberal arts school, was that you know this is all about teaching you to learn whatever you want to learn, teaching you to be able to analyze information, to synthesize your own opinions, to have a relationship to language, to be able to articulate your thoughts in clear (laughs) and developed ways, and to love learning. And all of these things are quite general, but actually I use them every day. And so, you know, and in a political science degree, what is it really? It's 11 classes out of 36 in a particular subject. So I'm certainly not a political scientist, although I have a little bit of understanding about the development of the nation state and social movements and things like this that maybe other people who haven't studied political science might not have. But but it was really about language and writing and learning. So some of the poetry in your lyrics was influenced by your studies, I imagine. Yeah, I think so. Although poetry comes from a different place, too. It's like you do all that work to develop a relationship to language, and then you let your unconscious mind get a hold of that understanding, and that's where the lyrics really come from. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, your parents are both doctors, is yes. that right? Yes. What did they think about this turn you made from going to you know prestigious Ivy League university to this I think, risky choice of becoming a full-time artist. Oh, you're not the only person who thinks it's risky. <laughs> I think it's risky, too. <laughs> oh, I think you've survived the risks, haven't you? I, I mean, that, I think you've made it, right? I, yes and no. I think that being an artist in this society is pretty much endlessly risky. You really never know what is culturally around the corner, and so there's always an element of um, being prepared for unknown challenges. But for a person like me, I actually just don't mind that much. I'm like, that's just part of the adventure. That's that's totally fine. My parents, on the other hand, were um, very nervous for me coming to this country. They came here to, you know, have a better life and, and to be able to provide us with the future that they wanted us to have. And so going into a profession that didn't provide any guarantees was not their idea of an ideal you know, Did they try to talk you out of it? Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> but eventually they became my greatest supporters. Oh, nice. They are incredibly supportive. And it's not just my parents. You know, it's my cousins, my aunties, my uncle. Every time I perform in Seattle where a lot of my family in this country lives, my 
audience is full of cousins, you know, and they're incredibly supportive and just so kind. And my dad was at my show at Great American Music Hall, and he dances with me on stage when he's at the shows. And it's it's all it's it's all love, you know. It took him a while to get there, but you can't really blame them for that, you know. That's just that's just the no. I'm thinking hardworking uh, immigrant parents. It's a classic story. They wanted you to be a doctor, a lawyer, yeah. or something like that. Yeah, of course, <laughs> of course they did. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, well, you're not exactly busking on the corner, McLean. No, I think no. You've, you've done pretty darn well. No, I, I feel very lucky. I feel very lucky to have the support that I've had. Well, we haven't played nearly enough from your new album, We Are Alive. So I thought we'd uh, jump forward again and go to that album and play the title song. That was We Are Alive, the title track from the new album by my guest, McLeet. McLeet, that one featured your guitar. It um, did, yeah. Well, tell me about that rhythm, that little uh, riff that you're picking out on the guitar. So that riff um, is a rhythm that I learned from a friend of mine and a member of the Nile Project collective of musicians. His name is Ahmed Saeed, and he's an incredible Masenkop player from Port uh-huh. Sudan. So Masenko. not Masenko, which is an Ethiopian uh, oh, single-string fiddle, but yes. Masenkop, which is actually that uh, the Beja version of the krar, which is a six-string lyre from Ethiopia. So it looks like the krar. That's actually an instrument found across the Nile Basin. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, the, the krar looks almost like the, the ancient Greek lyre. You know? Yes, yes, it does. It's an ancient instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Ahmed Saeed taught the Nile Project Collective that rhythm, and it was um, part of a song that he did with us. And we learned it in January of 2013 in the Nile Project residency. And um, the two of us were doing a session together, and we were playing some music just as a duo. And he taught me the dance to that rhythm, and that really helped to get it inside my body, you know. Anyway, I just couldn't get it out of my head, and I was thinking about five-count rhythms. And then in a percussion lesson, I learned a Radiohead five-count rhythm, and I, and they ended up coming out together in an improvisation. And actually, We Are Alive came out in an improvisation. And so the Nile Project ended up really directly in that song. And So we have to say what the Nile Project is. We've talked about we talked around it now yeah. twice. What is it? I know you're you're deeply involved in it. So the Nile Project is an initiative that brings musicians together from all 11 Nile Basin countries to create music together in annual residencies and we then tour that music 
the idea is that along the Nile Basin, we don't know each other very well. You know, the kind of cultural connection that we have in diaspora where folks from the basin are our neighbors and our co-workers and our peers, the cultural access that we have together here actually doesn't mm. happen on the continent. So we created this project to bring that kind of cultural access to the continent. And by the way, the, the Nile Basin includes, what, Egypt, Ethiopia, Sudan, Kenya? So it's DRC, Congo, Rwanda, Burundi, Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, Ethiopia, Eritrea, South Sudan, Sudan, and Egypt. Oh, you're going from the source to the mouth of the Nile. <laughs> from the way the river flows, mm -hmm. and it's, it's most of the eastern continent. So we started from a real cultural access perspective and cultural curiosity perspective, but very soon after we first, first, first launched the project, we really delved into research and reading and um, learning about what was going on there. And we discovered the quite vast political tensions that exist over how the water is shared in the basin. And the, the basin is kind of in a process of redefining how it relates to itself. That is bringing up a conversation, which is how do we share the water um, in the 21st century and beyond? And how do we actually tackle these issues of, that we're facing in the 21st century without knowing each other very well? It's quite difficult. So we realized that this cultural project could actually have relevance, not just for music, but for the broader basin, the kind of empathy that music creates, the kind of cultural curiosity, the ability for music to let a culture into a person's heart, you know, it's a really exciting project. And, and just being there at the residencies, it's so meaningful. Everybody's so curious to learn about each other's cultures and each other's musics. And is there music coming out of this that you're oh, going yeah. to record? Or? Well, there's one album that came out last year. It's called Aswan. Every year the albums will be named after the city that the residency happens in. Um, so the first album was Aswan, and um, we're working now on the Kampala album. Now, the song we just heard, We Are Alive, as you said, was influenced by the music of that region, influenced by your work on that project, and the lyrics, mm -hmm. which you've talked about a little bit before. Mm -hmm. A kind of reminder or celebration of the fact that, above all, we're alive? <laughs> the lyrics were actually an entire improvisation. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> it, this is part of the process of songwriting. You realize that, like I was saying before, you know, Sometimes your unconscious mind is better at writing than your conscious mind. And so it's almost like like I created the rhythmic bed that I knew I wanted for the song. And then I do that in GarageBand. And then I just layer track after track of vocal improvisations. And it's almost like you can excavate the song from there. But I really liked it because I felt the kind of poles that we're always moving between, you know, the the moments of difficulty that we all have, you know, whether or not we talk about having them is one thing, but we've all gone through it, you know, and we've all had these wonderful shining moments of life, which we consider our own personal, <laughs> you know, heaven on earth. <laughs> and it is a celebration of that. And it's a celebration that you kind of can't have one without the other. And usually, in fact, one leads to the other. <laughs> so you improvised and you used GarageBand, the software, to layer it. Now, I've not seen you perform live except on YouTube. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that struck me immediately was that you seem to have that confidence and that self-possession 
to play around, to improvise, to be creative, even on stage. Yeah. Some people don't have that. And especially, you're still relatively new to this. You know? Yes. Were you always that confident? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I think it comes from, that is where I find jazz. You know, mm. that's where the jazz element is. It's in the fact that, you know, if you're going to play this music night after night, you got to make it fun. And how are you going to make it fun? Change it up, you know, and let the band surprise you and let your interpretation come from the feeling in the room. Jazz taught me that. You know, typically we'll say a jazz singer is somebody who would sing standards, you know, songs written before 1959 or something like this. But to me, that's not what a jazz singer is at all. It's it's a singer who improvises with phrasing and melody and, and all of these things. And, and I, I love doing that. So in that sense, I can call myself a jazz singer. Which is not to say that you can't be old-timey when you want to. <laughs> I was going to play another piece uh, called Saving Up. Mm-hmm. That's uh, a Quinn original. It's a Quinn original, but he kind of gets the feel like of some old-time gin joint or something. Totally. Going so let's hear you Or sing. somebody's drunk on a porch. <laughs> <laughs> so let's hear this new old song. The day has gone below. Just got tired of waiting You're laid by years ago To finally shake and shake him Oh, will you stay above The lightning and the thunder There's no When you inhabit, you know, a period and a, a song that suggests an ambience like that, mm-hmm. do you do you feel yourself traveling? Do you transport to get that feeling? I think that a song tells you what it needs. Mm-hmm. And maybe it changes its mind over time because it always evolves, you know, and you know that if you see a live band two years after they've recorded something, they probably aren't sounding like they sounded on the record. But songs have signposts built into them, whether it's the phrasing of a of the main melody or the bass line. And you kind of just follow it and see where it leads. Does it also affect your personality? Do you become a character? You know, I really developed musically originally when I first started writing songs with a singer called Tom Sway who was my one of my first voice teachers, and he had a theater background. And so he used to teach me through theater techniques. And it was also a songwriting lesson and a voice lesson at the same time. And the whole thing was about inhabiting characters, but not essentially, not that a single song had an essence, but rather that a song could be so many things, and that one day you could sing it like you were the Wicked Witch of the West, Mm. and the next day you could sing it like you were a five-year-old girl, and the next day you could sing it as though you were a 95-year-old woman, and the next day you could sing it as though you were full of, you know, whatever emotion you could pick. You can pick a lens and you can go there. So yes, there are characters, but it's very loose, you know, and mostly the character is you. (laughs) Mm, Different sides of you. Yes, exactly. Um, I wanted to play another uh, cover of yours 
by someone who I think you admire a lot. Actually, Nina Simone was not the first person to sing this song, but she probably made it famous. Yes, she did. It started with a musical, I guess. Mm -hmm. The roar of the grease paint, the smell of the crowd. But uh, everyone thinks of Nina Simone, I think, if they know this song. It's feeling good. Mm -hmm. Birds flying high, you know how I feel. Sun in the sky, you know how I feel. Breeze drifting on by, you know how I feel. It's a new dawn, it's a new day, it's a new life for me. It's a new dawn, it's a new day. It's a new life for me Ooh And I'm feeling good Fish in the sea You know how I feel the river's running free You know how I feel Oh, I sit on a tree You know how I feel It's a new dawn, it's a new day It's a new life for me Are you ever intimidated by the history of a song, by the people who've sung it? Like Nina Simone, you know, that's... Oh, yeah. I I knew going into the studio, I knew that if we didn't get it right, it wasn't making it on the record. <laughs> and that was that. I was like, this cannot be like every other version of the song. And if we get it right, we can do it and we can put it on the record. And if it's not, then this is going to have nine songs. <laughs> <laughs> but it made it. It did. Well, we've uh, we've bounced around uh, your music catalog quite a bit, but I thought it only appropriate to end uh, with a song from the latest album, We Are Alive. And um, I was thinking of In Sleep, but... That's what I was thinking, too, for some really? reason, but I might have picked it out of your brain. You might have. <laughs> that's, that's pretty cool. So I think we're, we're agreed. Let's end with In Sleep. Want to tell us about this song, and then we'll we'll play it. Yeah, that song, uh, In Sleep, I wrote at a time when I was super frustrated with the logical world. It was a moment where maybe the intensive logistics that I had to handle in music was taking a little bit out of, of the magic out of it. And so I wrote a song that celebrated our daily break from the logical, which is our dream world. <laughs> How perfect. We started with a song that urge people to throw out their clocks <laughs> and live to a different rhythm, right? Mm -hmm. And now we're going to end with one that, you know, takes leave of logic and daily order uh, and goes into a different world. So that's what we're going to do. Um, another original song by McLeet, In Sleep, from her latest album, We Are Alive. McLeet, it has been great talking to you. Thanks so much for having me. And you can learn more about McLeet at her website, mcleetmusic.com. McLeet is spelled M-E-K-L-I-T. Special thanks today to Wenda Hasey and the Bay Area Video Coalition. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly saying goodbye until next week. 
or online at 7thAvenueProject.com. Rest me from this logic world, cave well I was born. Slip me on to poetry, a million pages torn. Let the words wash over. And 